You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I can't do a regular show opener this week. No time to rant. I'm going out of town. So instead, I'm doing a quick PSA for a new effort that I think is interesting and I know it'll be of interest and probably really helpful for lots of Savage Lovecast listeners out there. Those listeners who tell me that they were subjected to abstinence education and harmed by purity culture and have been helped by my podcast. Well, Dr. Kristen Mark is an endowed chair and tenured professor at Institute for Sexual and Gender Health in University of Minnesota Medical School. And she has created something that she is calling the Abstinence Project. Hey, Dr. Mark, thanks for jumping on the phone this morning. Hi. So, so what is the Abstinence Project and what are you hoping to do with it? Well, the Abstinence Project really aims to uncover the harms of abstinence-only sex ed through the art of storytelling. So people submit their stories of how abstinence-only sex ed impacted them because we know that when abstinence is the only message provided to young people, they tend to experiment with sex earlier. They tend to have more unintended pregnancy and STI rates. And it can also really have a lasting impact on the way that people's sexual and gender identity develop. So we are collecting stories from people to have them highlight the harms that abstinence-only sex ed has had on their lives. And, and why storytelling? Well, I think when you attach a human experience to something like this, it really becomes so much more meaningful. People like stories. They like being able to relate through lived experiences, right? And I think that those human experiences are one of the only ways to truly bring two sides of an issue together. You're doing something that I think is a little sly. Uh, reminds me of maybe the Santorum neologism campaign. You're calling it the Abstinence Project in hopes that when people search for abstinence online, they find you. Yes, that is the plan. <laughs> so people out there online searching for comprehensive sex ed are probably going to find some pretty decent resources, but there might be some people online looking to learn more about abstinence education, may even think it's a good idea, and your hope is they'll find their way to you. Exactly. So where can people find the Abstinence Project online and, and where can they submit their stories? Yeah, they can find the Abstinence Project online just at theabstinenceproject.com. We're trying to be super clear about that um, for the exact reason that we just noted. So they can just click on the link, submit your story, and they'll, their story will be submitted. There are also tons of stories for them to look through and read about other people's experiences. Lastly, before I let you go, how is abstinence education still a thing? I, I think people out there just generally believe we're not wasting money on this anymore, that it was kind of a Clinton era, George W. Bush era thing. And then Obama came into power and reason took over. And then Donald Trump isn't interested in anyone being abstinent. How are we still wasting money on this when we know it doesn't work? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a lot of powerful entities that lobby policymakers, though, to get the government to fund this abstinence-only sex ed. And funding is largely up to those state and local governments. And also, sex ed is often the first thing to kind of be used as a ploy within different bills and getting them passed. So even though we might think that somebody's going to be really supportive of comprehensive, inclusive sex ed, often the, in those little negotiations, like this happens during the Obama administration, the abstinence-only lobbying groups will come through and um, really get that piece of the pie. Into a bill that Obama can't veto. And so then exactly. Obama ends up spending money on abstinence education that he didn't want to spend. And it's just continued. It's like this ghost ship of bullshit floating into high schools still. 
Yeah, definitely. And there's so much fear around it within those high schools, right? Like there's the concern, the problem, one of the problems is that the loudest voices are the smallest number of people, like more than 93% of parents support comprehensive sex ed. But those who oppose the programming are the loudest voices. And those voices really mount pressure to cave and just stick to abstinence messages only and hope that the rest gets covered elsewhere. And they harm people. Abstinence messages harm people. Yes, they sure do. Um, we have seen that they that shame and guilt that is embedded within abstinence-only messaging harms people well into adult sexual development. All right. If you have an abstinence education, <laughs> miseducation story to share, go to theabstinenceproject.com and share your story. Hey, Dr. Kristen Mark, thank you so much for jumping on the phone and good luck with the project. Thanks so much. All right. Coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Love Cast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And joining me on the Magnum Lovecast, the Savage Lovecast Magnum, more calls, more guests, no ads, pioneering relationship researchers and experts, John and Julie Gottman of the Gottman Institute, join me. We talk about how and why relationships fail or succeed and why gay couples communicate better than straight couples. That's on the Magnum. All that coming up right now. Hi, Dan. I'm a 33-year-old woman living in New York City, and I'm calling with a sex success story. I heard your recent podcast episode with a listener from Canada who called in to say he saw a woman masturbating on her balcony. I just thought that was so hot. So when my boyfriend came over, I brought him out to my balcony, sat him down in our patio furniture, and went to town on him. I gave him a blowjob for 30 minutes, edging him the entire time. And I am confident that many people, thousands of people could have potentially seen us. My balcony faces two high rise buildings with a very clear view into our balcony, which has solid walls around it, but people higher above us can see us. So I gave him this amazing blowjob. I edged him for about 30 minutes. And then he brought me inside my apartment and fucked me within an inch of my life. It was incredible. So thank you for this show. And thank you, listener, for the inspiration. Thank you for calling in and sharing your success story. I'm a little concerned we might inspire someone to the point where they get arrested, public sex, Lily Law can come for you when you're having public sex. So everyone, please bear that in mind before you take your calculated risks. Still awesome sex success story. Thank you for calling. Thank you for sharing. If you, listener, have a success story that you'd like to share, that you'd like us to start next week's Lovecast with, give us a buzz. Share yours. Hi, Dan. I am a straight woman, 43 years old. Good job, good career, makes good money. I'm also a fag hag or girl fag. Anyway, I have a fabulous life. Dave loves me. I love my days. We go to circuit parties. We go concerts, vacations, everything. So I love that part of my life, but also I need some dick. And lately I... Because Tinder is so random and people ghost and everything. So I've been thinking of uh, hiring a male for sex, a male sex worker. But also I want to be safe. So I wanted to ask you or your listeners any advice for how to start 
going about that route. I only make sex from a male. That's it. And maybe a boyfriend experience, but I'll decide that. But yes, I am concerned about safety. Also, I live alone and I have cats at home. I don't want some psycho coming and stealing and <laughs> doing things. But yeah, so as a female, I, I just want to be safe and, you know, just get what I need from a male. That's it. Back in the day, back in the pre-Fosta-Sesta days, I might have sent you to rentboy.com, which I don't think exists anymore. I haven't looked in a while. But those sorts of sites where sex workers could uh, put up ads and communicate with each other, they're now kind of illegal. And, you know, rentboy.com was mostly pitched at a gay male clientele or a male clientele, not all of them gay. And just like the clientele wasn't all gay, the escorts weren't all gay. There was a lot of gay for pay guys, a lot of bi guys who were seeing mostly male clients through those websites, websites like rentboy.com, because it's mostly men who will or have to pay for sex. And my advice back in the day would have been to get on rentboy.com and look for guys that you think are hot and send them a note and tell them you're a woman and that you're looking to hire a male escort. And some of them will say, hey, I don't do women. Hey, I'm gay. But a significant percentage would have said, okay, sure. They don't hang out their shingle for women because women don't come and pay. You don't have that option now. The last place, it seems, on the internet where sex workers can be open about being sex workers and organize around uh, advocating for the rights of sex workers really is Twitter. So now my advice is to get on Twitter and buddy up to people who are sex workers, self-identified sex workers, out sex workers who are organizing politically and successfully so. Look what just happened with OnlyFans, which was going to eliminate sex workers and porn from their site. And sex workers uh, and porn stars pushed back mostly on Twitter and organized and reached out and hit the mainstream media and turned that back. So my advice for people looking for sex workers now is to get on Twitter, follow sex workers who are doing sex work advocacy, get to know some of them. If you'd like to have a consultation, pay them. Pay one for half an hour, an hour of their time and get some advice. Uh, you will find male sex workers on Twitter and the same standard applies. Some of those guys are bi. Some of those guys are gay. They're not going to want to be hired by you. They're not going to service you. But some of them are gay for pay and would much rather be working with women, would much rather have a, a female clientele or a clientele composed entirely of women, but not an option out there in sex work land for most guys who are doing sex work. So in a way, you should think of yourself as potentially very desirable and very marketable on the client marketplace. It's usually not how we talk about it. It's the marketplace for sex, not the marketplace for clients seeking sex. But for a lot of guys who do sex work, you would be a highly desirable client. And that you're also a bit of a girl fag, a bit of a fag hag, and you understand gay culture, which is where most of the guys who are doing sex work with other men hang out, reside, also is an advantage for you. As for your cats, I think that is an overblown concern. Sex workers have enough on their plates without stealing and taking care of other people's cats. I don't think anyone's going to steal your cat if that's some sort of residual boil your bunny anxiety because of the 1987 film fatal attraction time to let that go 
get lots of people hook up with lots of people, millions, hundreds of millions of people every week hook up with other people they've just met who have pets. If this was a common thing, a thing anyone actually had to worry about, we would hear every weekend, every Monday, we would open the internet, be nothing but stories uh, about people whose pets were swiped by the hookups, one night stands or sex workers they had over that weekend. We don't read those stories because that doesn't happen. Hi, I'm 31. I'm from Australia. I'm from Melbourne. I'm just asking about the safety of like toys with squared bases. I note in the earlier question that you um, answered that squared bases were the answer to not getting things stuck in your ass. I just have to say that three weeks ago, I got a butt plug with a flared base stuck in my ass. I had the butt plug in my ass. My partner had a dildo in my pussy. And at some point, he said that the butt plug disappeared. Because I live in Australia, we went to the hospital. I wasn't afraid of debt because we have public health. Anyway, they concluded that they couldn't get it out. <laughs> Two doctors tried. And they said I needed surgery. I suppose the question is, you said that flared bases were safe. This is a glass butt plug that we purchased from a reputable site in Australia. They sell reputable sex toys. It has a flared base. It's glass. It's designed to be inserted into the ass. I had hundreds of good reviews, and yet it got stuck in my ass. I'm scared now. What do I do? Do I stop using butt toys? Do I keep using them? Do I just hope for the best? Was this a freak accident? Like, I honestly, when I think back on the moment that there's butt plugs disappeared into my ass, like, I'm at a loss. How did that happen? I'm going to keep busting out the ancient pop culture references, the ancient movies. Listening to your call made me think of that line from Jaws. We're going to need a bigger boat. You're going to need a bigger base. You're going to need a more flared base. If your ass, when you're not paying attention, is swallowing flared butt plugs, well, it wasn't flared quite enough. Flares like butt plugs come in all different shapes and sizes, kind of like assholes come in all different shapes and sizes. I'm not saying you're a gaper. But how'd that happen? Well, the base slipped past your sphincters and your sphincters closed around it. Maybe you have the kind of ass that like just chews on dick and chews on toys and where you're having orgasmic contractions and your ass just kind of swallowed it. But likelier, how'd that happen? Your sex partner kept pushing and pushed the base past your sphincter and in a thing that can happen. I've seen some glass butt plugs. I've seen some little metal butt plugs with jewels on the end where the quote-unquote flared base is not that much bigger than the sphincter it's pressed up against or it's supposed to prevent itself from slipping into fully. You want a bigger flared base. You want a wider flared base. Maybe you want to use a dildo instead of a butt plug that has nuts on it. Nuts are a great flared base. You're not going to be able to basically with the dildos that have ball sacks built into them, you'd have to take a right turn at the bottom of the dildo to get it all the way in your ass with the nuts, which nobody does. Now, of course, I've said that someone's probably going to send me a link to something on the internet where someone is doing just that. Nobody does it by accident. 
You have to do that intentionally and on purpose. But yeah, this is a thing that can happen. This is a thing that Full disclosure, happened to me once with a sex partner where I put a butt plug in him. It had a flared base, but it was kind of not a firm flared base. And the flared base just kind of closed as I was pushing on the butt plug and it popped into him and we had to dig it out, which was a process. It did not involve a trip to the ER because we do not have socialized medicine here. That said, I couldn't tell in the end if your call was an advertisement for socialized medicine or a horror story about it. You say you went to the hospital with the glass plug embedded in you and they told you you would need surgery. Did you have it yet? Are you still at home with the glass butt plug embedded in you waiting for surgery three months or six months from now? Are you coughing up shits? I hope you're okay because I don't want socialized medicine horror stories on my show. I only want stories on my show that make socialized medicine look desirable. And yeah, that's desirable. You have a little sex accident, something goes wrong. You want to be able to go to the ER or the hospital if you need to without worrying about going into debt or bankrupting yourself. You also, if the reason you went to the hospital, you've got a glass butt plug stuck in your ass. You don't want to be scheduled for surgery in six months and sent home. You want that to happen. So it's a missing part of your story. I hope this is resolved. I hope it's out. But yeah, anybody else out there, caller wanted other people with similar experiences to share. If you've got a lost toy story to share, give us a call. But once again, going back to Jaws 1975, we're going to need a bigger, but you're going to need a bigger plug with a wider, firmer, flared base. Avoid those cutesy pootsy little plugs that appear to have little tiny flared bases or jewels on the flared bases. If it's not significantly wider than your asshole itself, when you're fully aroused and you've been playing with your asshole for a while, it's not actually a flared base. It's potentially act two of that insertion toy you're playing with. So yeah, be careful. Hey Dan, I'm a gay trans man in my early 20s living in a city in the Midwest. So I do a bit of online sex work, and I met this amazing older man on OnlyFans. We began emailing back and forth. Turns out he is an American living in Europe, and he's very well connected in my career field. He's interested in helping me make connections, as well as being like a friend and fuck buddy to me. I think he'll become sort of a sugar daddy for me, and I'm very excited about this because I love older men, older gay men. Yeah, we've begun FaceTiming often, and we're actually planning on meeting in New York next month. We're also talking about me flying to Europe to stay with him when and if travel restrictions allow. Yeah, so my issue is this. I'm just not sure how to tell my friends or family about this relationship, or should I even tell them? I'm very close to my parents. We live in different states, but we talk very often. Yeah, I just can't see myself not telling them about my travels to New York, let alone Europe. But considering the nature in which I met this guy and the fact that this guy is older than both of my parents, my inclination is to hide this from them. But that feels kind of icky, too. A quick note about those travel restrictions. Right now, you can go to Europe. Europe was actually allowing unvaccinated Americans to travel to Europe, which seems insane. All this while, since the basically the start of the pandemic, Europeans haven't been able to travel here. So if anyone is going anywhere next month, it's going to be you. The Biden administration announced they may lift travel restrictions on Europeans, but not until November. So if you're planning on going somewhere in October to meet with this guy, you're going to be getting on a plane. I hope you are fully vaccinated because if you are not, 
Europe ain't playing anymore and they're not going to let you in. All right. As for this problem, I have long endorsed running your parents uh, on a need-to-know basis. And when my mother was alive, she also endorsed being run on a need-to-know basis. What do your parents need to know? Well, I don't see how much there is here that you're obligated to disclose. Uh, Even if this were a sugar daddy, sugar baby relationship, which it's not yet, even if it were a transactional relationship, your parents wouldn't need to know that. If you were just seeing this guy for the first time or seeing him casually, your parents don't need to know about him, don't need to know his age. If flying to Europe is something you've never done before and it's something that financially wouldn't normally be possible for you and you have to tell your parents something about it, you can tell them a lie. You can tell them that you've been saving money or that you have a friend who wanted you to travel with them and is treating you to this trip. Or you have a friend that wanted you to travel to Europe dot, 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 with them implied, and they're treating you to this trip. You might want to leave out so as not to cause your parents unnecessary anxiety that this is a person you haven't met before. You might want to leave out that this is a person that you hope to be doing a kind of low-key sex work with and for. Your parents don't need to know that. And they don't, unless you form a really tight bond and have a relationship with this person, that you want to be public about all those ways in which a relationship is also not just about what happens in private, but what happens in public and how you two are received together and perceived as a pair together. Well, then you can stare that down. And if you're out to your parents about being trans, you've already, and being gay, you've already had two conversations with your parents where you had to face down their assumptions about who you were, uh, their prejudices about what gay people are or what trans people mean. And you did so successfully. You must have. If you have the kind of relationship with your parents where you're contemplating having to tell them about your new boyfriend or sugar daddy and what to tell them about that new boyfriend and sugar daddy, you obviously have open lines of communication. So if down the road you have to tell your parents that you're dating someone who's older than they are, well, that's just one more difficult conversation to get through uh, in a series that you've already gotten through successfully. And so I Bet you can get through that one successfully too because the answer is pretty easy. I've always been attracted to older men. Sorry if this makes you a little uncomfortable that he is actually a little older than you guys, but I dig him and I like him and he's good to me and kind to me and I want you guys to know him. I want you guys to meet him, that he's mentoring you, that he's helping you out in your field, that there's a transactional element to this relationship. They don't need to know that. And if you're going to run your parents on a need-to-know basis, don't tell them that. You don't need to tell them that. You can keep that to yourself. Hey, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. 28-year-old cis female married to a cis male who's 34. Together for eight years. When we first got together, I made it clear that I am an only child and I don't like to share. Fast forward to 2020, when he halfway confessed to having a secret online girlfriend for the past three months, while I was in full-time school and full-time work. I confessed to him that in 2016, me and one of his friends made out, and he performed oral on me on New Year's Eve when all three of us were very, very drunk, but nothing else happened. He said he wasn't mad, and we found out later that he was in the hot wife I made him stop talking to his online girlfriend, and he didn't want to lose the friendship. 
I said it was the least he could do, but he still resisted quite hard, but he still eventually did stop talking to her and ended the friendship. For the past year, we've been going on and on and on about this poly versus monogamy cycle. We can't seem to agree on terms or rules. So I tried to close the relationship back up, but he keeps knocking on that poly door and won't drop it. But what terms are discussed, he keeps changing his mind and what he actually wants. Sometimes it's just cuddles and making out with others. And sometimes it's dinner and movies and sex with friends. But not dating, he says, even though it sort of sounds like dating to me. There are a few red flags he keeps saying. One of them, he says, is if he has to choose between losing a friendship again or our marriage, he'll choose the friend. And whenever we try to set rules, he keeps saying he would have to consult the other third party before making any decisions on the rules between us. Um, there's currently no other person in that position yet. He said if he had to choose between poly and monogamy, he would choose to go back to couples counseling. I guess we're trying to figure out how to be a pug, poly under duress, with these wishy-washy terms. I'm really, really struggling emotionally with this uneasy feeling about jealousy in my marriage. Any help would be appreciated because I just, I don't know what to do anymore. This isn't as confusing a situation as you're making it out to be. It's not what you want to hear from your husband, but he's telling you very clearly that the relationship, if it's going to survive, is going to be open. He's told you that if he finds himself in a position in the future where he has to choose between a friend, a friend that he has a romantic girlfriendy connection with, and you, he's going to choose the friend next time. And you put this choice before him, monogamy or polyamory, and he chose couples counseling, which wasn't on the very short list of two choices, which means he's not interested in being monogamous, but he wants someone else in the room to help broker that conversation with you around getting what he wants, which is an open relationship. So after eight years of marriage, you've arrived at a point where you either always were or have grown to be sexually and in a relationship sense, incompatible. And what do you do now? Well, I think you're going to have to open this relationship. I think he's going to open it unilaterally if you don't open it mutually, or you're going to have to end it. If you don't want to be in an open relationship, you don't have to be in an open relationship. But if you don't want to be in an open relationship or a polyamorous relationship, you're probably going to have to exit the one you're in now. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old bisexual woman. So I've been dating my partner for three three years, and we've been consensually non-monogamous through this entire time. It's been a brand new experience for me and an edge for me, and I've been willing to lean into it and learn about it because I love him very much. And it's been fun for me, too. I've got to explore my bisexuality. We've mostly explored in the form of package deal and we had kind of a really casual girlfriend for the past year. Super blindsided right now because two weeks ago we ended things with our girlfriend and it ended peacefully. It was just time. And I found out just tonight that the next day he um, cheated on me with the sex worker. Also, coincidentally, that sex worker happens to be my hairstylist. So it's just really fucked up. And so I am most disturbed because he kept it so concealed for the past two weeks. And that really disturbs me because we had a lot of sex in the past two weeks and a lot of intimacy in the past two weeks. And he didn't say anything. I finally gouged it out of him tonight. 
and he fessed up and broke down in tears and is so sorry and so ashamed and all of that. But I feel so just so broken and I don't know where to go from here. If you can rebuild trust from something like this or if it's just unsalvageable, I'm just really, really lost right now. Okay, so what did your boyfriend tell you about hiring your hairdresser slash sex worker the day after you guys broke up with your girlfriend? What was that about for him? He didn't tell me for two weeks, and a lot has come to light since then. So it's stuff we're unpacking. I'm unpacking in therapy on my own, not Mm -hmm. together. But um, I think it had to do with having one last hurrah before we buckled down for a little bit. And I think it had to do with power. That would be my... I think he's starting to see that more and more in retrospect. I'm like a lot has happened since I left my voice down, like moving out and stuff. Oh, okay. There have been developments. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely development. So is the relationship over? Are we discussing or kicking a dead horse here? I don't know. I just don't, I don't know. It's finally like a lot has happened. Mm -hmm. He's finally, I think coming to me with more humility before it was like very much like, self-loathing get away from me you don't deserve this I don't deserve you and then he left for four days and in that time I found a new place to live because I knew that cohabitation might not be good right now anyways Uh and in that choice it wasn't like I I was just like I need to do the next thing for me like tomorrow and that was just finding someone else to be backing way up when you guys when you guys ended things with your girlfriend it was explicit that you were closing the relationship back up it was going to be monogamous for a while you were shutting that down Yes. And in the hiring of a sex worker who just happened to be your hairdresser, was that malicious? Did he know that she was your no, hairdresser? No, he didn't know until afterwards. It was a weird coincidence. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, it was just all really weirdly like a humiliating slap in my face. But not um, an intentional slap in your face. No. 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 Huh. <sighs> Okay, so I, I guess what we have to do or we have to contemplate and, and discuss with your therapist is what does this mean and what was he trying to tell you? And obviously, if you know, you're shutting down the relationship, you want a monogamy back up and he doesn't and felt like he needed one last hurrah, he needed to assert himself and his autonomy in this way that violated your agreement about what your relationship meant and, and how it would function – Okay, I, I guess like if he hadn't found out about it for fifty years, and you, and he'd never done something like this again, maybe it would be permissible. Maybe you could get past it. You know, fifty years in the future. But right now, you finding out about this, like, what does it say about his ability to honor the commitments he's made, particularly when you know they're in flux, or there's going to be you know different stages and periods of your life where maybe you're monogamous together, and maybe you're not monogamous by mutual agreement. But if he's telling you that I'm a sulky baby and you can't trust me when I commit to something that I'm not going to lash out and that I might commit to it, but it might not be what I want. I'm just telling you what I think you might want to hear. And then I'm going to do my own thing anyway. So I don't feel compromised or, or diminished in the relationship. Those are some difficult threads to, to, to pull out of a sweater without the sweater falling apart. 
But that requires him to come yeah. to a deep of an understanding about why he did what he did. And not just what he did, but what it meant that he did it. Was he slamming his hand yeah. down on the self-destruct button? Is where you're at right now where he wanted to get? Yeah, I think because he waited to tell me and we had, like, for lack of a better word, a glorious two weeks. Like, we really had, he was, like, showing up in ways that I needed him to. I think he would have told me sooner if it was like, I think he's split. Mm-hmm. I think he's definitely split. And it's not something that somebody who really wants to stay in the relationship would do. Well, simultaneously, I think he's battling with himself and his darker parts of him that drove him to take that action. But I, I think he would have told me sooner if he wanted to just end it. Cause even yesterday, he's pretty much like, I obviously don't want to give up on you and our relationship will be changed forever from this and I will love you forever and it splits me how much I love you I think he would have told me sooner if he was just trying to get out I don't think he was trying to just get out I think he he didn't like both me and our girlfriend being ready to end something that had him in a power position and didn't want to be told what to do I think it was a power thing it's like I was there for consensual non-monogamy and willing to negotiate it. And it, it wasn't about, I think even that, I think it was about just not wanting to be told what to do. And I think that's a pretty dark hidden agenda, but that would be just the tip of the iceberg. Cause of course this is also, I mean, I thought he was it. He could still be it, but he's got a ways to come back. He has some ground to make up uh, like amends have to be made. You asked, how do you trust someone again? Well, that person demonstrates that they're worthy of, your trust that they that they have to earn it. A person can't live eternally in the doghouse. Can't always be on the back foot. Can't always be apologizing. At a certain point, you have to reinvest your trust in them and relax and and yeah. and accept that your responsibility in staying in the relationship requires something of you too. Right? You, I hate when people get cheated on and stay in the relationship just so they can dictate, just so they can assert control. Just so they can, I can't do that. Be yeah. monstrous all the time, and, and like get into like a cop perp relationship with a romantic partner. That's awful, and some people will will want that kind of control and seize the opportunity to to grab it if they're the wronged party. And some people don't want out of a relationship so bad that they're willing then to basically live in a kind of prison of a relationship where they're always being, you know having their phones combed through and being policed and interrogated. And that's not healthy. Mm-hmm. So if you guys can't get past, you know, cop perp, <laughs> uh, guilty party interrogator, if you can't move past that, don't stay in the relationship. But you're going to need something yeah. more from him about like a, a full 360-degree understanding of why he did this at this moment. Sometimes people cheat just because they're horny and there's no – Bigger agenda, no grander three-dimensional chess explanation than just dickful thinking in that moment. Mm-hmm. And we could all – anybody could succumb to that kind of dickful thinking. Even people who don't mm-hmm. have dicks can succumb to dickful thinking. Sometimes when there's not an explanation yeah. and no deeper meaning, it can be harder to forgive and get past it because it seems so random. And then, you know, if there was something at work, some deeper forces at work that you could address, maybe then you could – infidelity proof your relationship going forward by addressing those things if it was just like kismet dickful thinking then you kind of have to live with 
you know, the psychological terror that that could happen again. But you know what? That could happen again even if it wasn't dickful thinking this time. We're all at risk of being cheated on at all times. It just didn't feel like dickful thinking. It felt like, fuck you, don't tell me what to do. Like, the timing was really, really bad. We were in an active fight. I left town, like, I left to stay with a friend for two days to give him space, and that's when it happened. And if it was dickful thinking, I don't know. It would just, I think I could wrap my head around that. Okay. And that is something that you guys should, if, if you're interested in getting back together, then that is something to unpack with a couple's counselor. If when we're in yeah, conflict, yeah. your go-to is cheating on me, we can't stay together. <laughs> because no. what that tells me is I can never be mad at you, that we won't be able to process conflict in a healthy and constructive way. Because I will always be worried that if I get mad, you're going to fuck somebody else yeah. to retaliate. Because you're processing, I guess, your anger like a toddler. Not like, a, you know, toddlers don't visit sex workers. But you no, know what I mean. Lashing out like a yeah. child. Having a tantrum is just with a sex worker as opposed to in a sandbox. And so, yeah. you know, you're, the answer to the question you're asking me is only going to come to you in your conversations yeah. with him, which I think should be, you say you're in therapy. You two should, if you're going to stay together or try to get past this, get into therapy together. Get into couples counseling together. We already are. We already had therapy two days after he cheated on me. <laughs> He's not in therapy with me. Great. And and then if you want to if you want to be together, keep having therapy. But then, like, I'm going to shift. You know, he's got a lot of ground to make up. He's got amends to make. He's got something he has to figure out and then present to you. But then the onus shifts onto your shoulders. If he works through all that and puts that before you and you choose to stay in the relationship, how do you trust him again? you start trusting him again. And that sometimes requires faking it a little bit that, you know, I'm feeling insecure right now. I'm feeling I can't trust you. That's just my anxiety and insecurities that you helped create. And so maybe some consideration from you, but I'm going to also work on tamping that down absent some evidence, but I'm not going to be on the constant hunt for evidence because you can't, can't erect guard towers around your relationship and police them at all times. If you stay with it, which is a choice that you will make. And in the end, you have to make responsibility for it. Good luck. I was so surprised to hear from you. And thank you for your time. I appreciate you. Hi, Dan. I'm a woman, a bi woman in her 30s living in the East Coast. I've been married for four years. And I just came out to my husband last summer. And at first it was pretty rocky, but he's been really great. And I mean... I, I cannot complain. However, you know, we've been doing swinging, which has been pretty fun. I had one sexual hookup with one of my good girlfriends. And, you know, everything's good. You know, we were reading stuff. We're trying to communicate, work on, you know, making this work out. The thing is that I don't have any, like, sexual chemistry with him. He is horny all the time all the time and he's always like grabbing my butt grabbing my boobs and all that stuff and wanting to fuck all the time and I have zero desire like none but I love him like crazy I love being with him living with him spending time with him hugging on him kissing him I don't like making out but I do like you know affection but sexually I have zero desire and I don't know how to make this work for the both of us he's not really interested in 
us in him hooking up with other girls. He wants to either hook up with, obviously have sex with me, or have sex with me and another woman. But like him with another woman on his own, he's like, I don't, I'm not interested in that. I want you and that's it. And I'm like, damn, because I don't know how to make this work. He's an amazing husband. I'm very much in love with him, but sexually it's just not working. You say you've been working on communication with your husband, but it sounds like you've ducked a very important topic that you might want to communicate with him more directly about as difficult as it will be for him to hear this from you. You're not sexually attracted to him. Were you ever, would be a question I would put to you, were you ever at the beginning of the relationship, were you sexually attracted to him? Did the sex ever work or were you just enduring him sexually this entire time to get the other things that you wanted from him. You say he's a wonderful husband and a terrifically supportive partner and there's a lot of affection in this relationship. Well, is that what you wanted all along? Was a companionate relationship where you're married to someone you love very deeply but it's not someone that you're involved with sexually and you're free to pursue sex with others outside that relationship? Maybe you knew that then and if so, you, there's some apologizing you need to do to your husband for misleading him. If this is something you've come to over time, well, that's just then a let it all hang out, brutally honest, convo, chunk of communication that you need to do with your husband. He probably, obviously he's still sexually attracted to you, would like to have sex with you, probably won't react well to hearing that. But if you don't Tell him that if you weren't honest with him about that, you're going to keep squirming away from him, which will gradually destroy his sexual self-confidence and sexual self-esteem, or you're going to wind up having a lot of sex with him to mollify him that you don't enjoy and that is going to leave you feeling used or jacked off inside of him. And so it's just somebody's going to get hurt here. Long-term damage is most likely going to be done to someone or to your marriage. The Hail Mary pass though is just being direct. Like I love you. I love our affectionate relationship just right now. And, and I would frame it as that right now, because if early in the relationship you were into him sexually and something changed, something could change again. So you can frame it as at this moment, I just don't feel sexual attraction or desire for you as much as I desire intimacy and connection and hugging and kissing and cuddling right now my body screams go get sex elsewhere from others and maybe that'll change but that's my truth right now and so how can that be accommodated in our relationship can you have maintenance sex with him that meets his needs that doesn't leave him too devastated because he'll know that that's what you're doing you're just milking the cow or can you be free to pursue sex with other people and can you encourage him at least for now to do the same? And who knows, perhaps knowing he's out there with other people will instill in you some new desire for him, seeing him through some other woman's eyes, or maybe it will not. And what's on the table going forward for the rest of your married lives is the companionate relationship option. But if that's not what he wants, ultimately, the marriage may not survive 
what is, I promise you, going to be a rough and painful transition that's going to require upending a lot of your husband's perfectly reasonable expectations about what your marriage is, means, contains, and makes possible for him. So circling all the way back to your comment, you guys have gotten really good communicating with each other about this shit. Yeah, no, no, you've been leaving a very important thing out of those conversations. Address it head on or brace yourself for the going through the motions, maintenance sex you're going to have to have to keep the peace at home so that you can have the freedom to get the sex you really want elsewhere. Good luck. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Dr. John Gottman and Dr. Julie Gottman. Dr. John Gottman is world-renowned for his work on marital stability and divorce prediction. He's conducted more than 40 years of breakthrough research with thousands of couples and is the co-author of more than 200 published academic articles and more than 40, 40 books. Dr. Julie Gottman is the co-founder and president of the Gottman Institute, a highly respected clinical psychologist. She has also co-authored or authored numerous books, including Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love, which she wrote with Dr. John Gottman. Hey, doctors, Gottman, welcome to the show. So you both famously, uh, based on your research, not intuition, you're not psychics, are able to predict within 10 minutes of meeting a couple with 94% accuracy whether they're going to stay together or split up. What are the tells? What are you looking for? Based on your research, what do you know to look for that gives that away, that gives you that superpower? So there's a lot of things that we look for. Um, first of all, it uh, depends on what they're talking about. If they're just kind of schmoozing or you know talking about how their day went or something like that, we look for interest in one another and mirroring excitement when one person gets excited about something. And we look for, you know, being interested, actively interested, and sympathetic, validating, uh, being affectionate, and so on. If they're talking about conflict, there's a whole pattern that we look for, which is uh, the pattern of attack, you know, pointing out your partner's weaknesses and limitations and and attributing all the problems in the relationship to your partner's personality flaws. And uh, we call that criticism. And that starts a cycle that goes on to contempt, uh, which is being insulting and superior to your partner, and uh, defensiveness, which is warding off a perceived attack and not taking responsibility for any part of the problem, and emotional withdrawal from interaction, which is stonewalling. So when you see those things, like when they're talking about something neutral or should be positive, when you see or, or don't see sort of mutual excitement and enjoyment in each other, and when they're processing a conflict, when you do see, particularly you guys cite contempt as almost, right. you know, when there's contempt, mutual contempt, contempt on one side, that that's something that a relationship can't come back from, can't survive. Well, it can if it gets help. You know, a lot of people, Dan, are ignorant, of course, about how to talk about their feelings, how to talk about anger, bitterness, uh, frustration, and so on. And they will often mimic the ways they grew up 
right? So mm-hmm. what they saw in front of them, they'll role model after. So when people hear that contempt is like sulfuric acid, not only for the relationship, but also for the body of the listener, mm-hmm. it suppresses the immune system in the listener, uh, then they are more apt to change and they simply need alternatives. You know, what road do I use? What words do I use to convey how upset I am rather than using contempt? So people can change, obviously. It's not just, uh, it's the end of the relationship. So when you sit down with a couple uh, in a research situation and you're like, you're predicting with 94% accurate that, yeah, no, these two aren't going to make it. Do you tell them? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for one thing, these stats, uh, the statistics are all based on group statistics, right? So uh, you see one couple uh, and the likelihood that if they don't do anything to change, the relationship is going to go south. Uh, you know, we see that in the research, but our job in research is not to tell people what's going to happen to them. But if they're coming into therapy and we see that same pattern, then we're more likely to say, okay, we got to work on this. This is a challenge in the relationship. Right. You've done a lot of research also into same-sex couples, gay couples, uh, and one of your most important findings in looking at gay couples and comparing them to opposite or same-sex couples, straight couples, is that gay couples process conflict differently and in right. ways that are more constructive uh, right. and are an example to straight couples. How do gay couples process conflict more differently? And I think just as importantly, why do you think gay couples process conflict differently? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, both great questions. First of all, they're different when we observe them. So we're not using questionnaires. We're really observing them. They're, uh, they're very direct, uh, particularly if it's a sexual issue, which is unlike straight couples who are very roundabout and can hardly tell what the complaint is. And they're less defensive as well. They take more responsibility. And there's more humor in the way they talk about a problem, the more shared humor and more gentleness. So they're direct, but also gentle. And that's a vast difference uh, compared to straight couples. I have a theory where that might come from, but I'd like to hear yours first. Well, let me give you uh, a theory. And of course, we haven't actually studied this. So it's it's simply a speculation. And that is, first of all, that You know, we know that gay and lesbian couples live in a terribly homophobic culture, right? So the enemy is without, you know, outside the relationship Mm. as opposed to between partners. Uh, Because of that, one, there's a sense of greater community support within gay and lesbian, you know, LGBTQ communities. Two, they're more sensitive to people being hurt because they've been hurt. They've been hurt by put-downs. I've never met a gay or lesbian or bi person, a transgender person, who hasn't been hurt by other people's comments, who hasn't been humiliated and shamed. So I think that grows a sensitivity within each individual in those communities such that they're more sensitive to one another in terms of not putting the other person down. 
So why doesn't the same thing then play out in straight relationships? I'm sure some of my listeners right now are thinking, well, straight women come in for judgment about their bodies, for slut shaming, for being male to feel inadequate. Uh, Straight men do too. I get letters every day from straight men who are very, uh, feel inadequate about their height, their income, the size of their penises. Why aren't straight people sensitized through those experiences in the same way that gay people are sensitized through their own experiences? of that? I, I, I think that it's easier for two men to understand each other than for a man to understand a woman and a woman to understand the man. And two women, it's easier for them to understand each other as well. So they have that going for them. And also, since uh, there's a smaller pool of available partners, um, it's, <laughs> you know, the relationship is more precious. And, you know, you, you go to greater lengths. You're, you're comparing your partner to alternatives. And... The alternatives may be uh, not quite as good in in the case of uh, same-sex couples. I want to share my theory about why gay people are, are more direct and why I've always been really direct about sex. You can't be a gay person. You can't be an out gay person. You can't be a gay person without finding in yourself that capacity to be very direct about something that is difficult to talk about or it's, you know telling people something that they don't want to hear. We get really good at that as teenagers. You know, coming out to friends, sometimes who are homophobic, coming out to families that aren't always initially receptive. And we have to model for them what we would like to get from them, which is compassion, understanding as we come out to them. Even if we get an angry reaction, we're often That's a good theory. trying to diffuse that anger through with humor and with not being reactive. Uh, but it's a strategy from a place of comparative weakness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the the strategy of the minority group to you know, the minority in your own family. And I, I just think that's why gay people often have time, easier time processing sexual conflict in a relationship mm-hmm. because we were processing a sexual conflict within ourselves before we could come out as gay. Mm-hmm. And then we're processing conflicts about our gayness with our families before we even could have a partner. That's a great theory, Dan. I, I think that's really true for hopefully at least uh, urban gay and lesbian people. However, I think that um, we still see, at least I've still seen, a lot of gay and lesbian people, especially people who are older, who haven't actually come out, who are still hiding, who are still struggling with that. Folks who, for example, may still be heterosexually married uh, and 60 years old, and they really are gay, Uh, but they're terrified to own it, terrified to live it. And because of that, um, they're not so direct. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, My whole theory was premised upon or or just referencing the gay and the out, that you can't be gay and out without getting some comfort around telling the truth. You know, every time you get a new job and you have a new bunch of coworkers, you have to come out to them again. It's like a skill that you never stop developing or perfecting or, or working on. Um, let's get back to just relationships in general. Uh, Twenty, There's a lot of pent-up demand for marriage. A lot of people are going to be getting married in the next year, hopefully after, if we can have vaccine mandates because idiots won't get vaccinated of their own free will. Please, please. And we can get to the other side of this and red state idiots stop killing themselves to own this, <laughs> that there will be a lot of weddings and we will get to go to a lot of weddings. What do people need to bear in mind before they make that proposal or walk down that aisle? What should they be looking for 
you know, I, I'm not one of those people who thinks divorce is always a tragedy. Mm-hmm. I think a relationship is something that two people can get out of alive and it can still have been a success. Literally, <laughs> marriages and relationships, the only thing where if everybody gets out alive, it was a failure. You know, we don't apply that standard to dinner, or airline travel or skiing or anything else. Everybody survived your vacation. Oh, what a sad event. Everybody survived this marriage. I think, you know, case by case, some marriages end and it was, you know, awful and high conflict and there's no affection, no friendship. Some end and there's still a lifelong connection and a bond. That's a successful marriage too, in my estimation. But for people who don't want a divorce in their future or that's not something that they can wrap their heads around, what should they be looking for before they make that proposal, before they walk down the aisle to divorce proof? That's that expression, that phrase (laughs) you used to see in a lot of women's magazines in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up that I hated. But to divorce proof your marriage or prevent getting to the point where you might have to get a divorce, what should you be looking for before the wedding? Okay. So first of all, you have to have an agreement on uh, monogamy versus polyamory. You need to uh, really make a decision that both people are really comfortable with, nobody is forced into, that either the relationship is going to be open or it's not. Uh, And are both people comfortable with that? Or if one person wants to be open, the other doesn't, are they comfortable with that? So that's one thing that has to happen. People don't say that to straight couples very often, that monogamy should be something you discuss rather than a default setting. I think that's really smart. I think everyone yes. should discuss monogamy as the choice right. we're making together as a couple. That's right. right. That's right. And I think, you know, a lot of millennials and younger folk, uh, straight or gay, are discussing monogamy much more openly and much more clearly. They're talking about sexuality much more clearly, gender much more clearly. So uh, there's progress on that front. Um, secondly, people need to examine themselves and see if, one, uh, they feel like they can be their total selves within this relationship. Can they be every aspect of themselves? Uh, Can they be the crazy, silly person? Can they be the depressed, down, defeated person? Uh, And will their partner have their back when they are? Uh, So that's another thing. Can they be fully themselves without feeling tension or the need to hide uh, from their partner. That's super important. Um, Straight honesty is important, being honest and direct with each other. Um, Feeling like there's empathy for one another, compassion for one another. And last but not least, when, you know, people are always going to hurt each other's feelings, always. You know, that's just the nature of being human, no matter who we are. Um, however, can you make repairs? Can you repair the relationship after there's been a hurt or a pain or uh, a regrettable incident? Can you repair it? And a lot of people don't know how to repair uh, past regrettable incidents. It's one of the things that we really advocate and we teach, in fact, in all of our workshops, our books, and so on. Forgiveness is important. You can't get to repair if you can't first forgive. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people misunderstand forgiveness or, or forgiving as forgetting or pretending that pain wasn't inflicted uh, or erasing it somehow. And it doesn't do any of those things. But I often find myself in the position of having to encourage people to forgive a betrayal. And no one can betray you 
like a romantic partner or a spouse can betray you. And that betrayal really cuts us to the, to the core. Mm-hmm. But I don't right. think, you know, I'm together now 30 years with my husband. You guys have been together longer. Mm-hmm. I don't see how our relationship could have lasted this long uh, if we weren't both capable of forgiving, not trivialities, but big, important betrayals. Mm. How important do you guys think? Does your research bear that out, that that, that forgiveness, I mean, is important, that, that, that having that skill? Because it seems to me that a lot of people go into relationships saying, these are the things I will never forgive or I could never forgive. And those become self-fulfilling prophecies down the road when you encounter that thing, which, you know, fate almost... To just to fuck with you is going to make sure that you encounter whatever's <laughs> on your list. It's, it's almost like the thing, the list of deal breakers you have when you're looking for a relationship, you end up having to tear it out, tear it up and throw it away if you want to have one. <laughs> and the list of things you can't forgive, I promise you one or two of those things, you're going to reach a point in your long, long, long-term relationship where you have to forgive mm-hmm. to, sa- to save that relationship if you value it. Yeah, one of the things that we've uh, we've discovered in working with couples where there is a betrayal, is that there needs to be a phase of atonement, which is implies forgiveness, but it also implies change. And so forgiving is not enough. Uh, you have to be willing, if you've done something to hurt your partner deeply, you have to be willing to really understand your motivations and be willing to change and really hear the hurt that you've caused. And so atonement is much deeper, I think, than just forgiveness. One of the things that you guys have identified in your work that kind of vibes with something I've talked about for a long time are the, the problems you'll never resolve. The, the conflicts, that it's, it's not little things that break up a relationship or brand new things that often end a relationship. It's long festering, irresolvable conflicts, sometimes around sex, sometimes around money. Uh, I call those things the price of admission. And you have to like pay the price of admission and ride the ride. And if the price is too high, don't pay, don't ride. But there are problems that you're never going to resolve. And sometimes I think people waste a lot of time and energy trying to fix something, force a resolution where no resolution will ever come. That's to the satisfaction of either party. And you just, if you want the relationship to survive, need to turn away from it, step around the landmine. Is that your advice, that, that, that there are things that you should stop working on? It's often anathema to counselors and therapists to tell people, don't work on that. You're never going <laughs> to fix that. Where do you guys come down on my advice to just like oh, not work on that? You're not going to fix it. Oh, conflict. So where we come down on it is in a slightly different place. So it kind of looks like this. It's like, you know, I love everything about you. You're the most wonderful, fabulous human being on the planet. I wouldn't change a thing about you, but for God's sakes, would you please change? So how we get down to that, here's what we do. We have basically almost a blueprint to deal with these kinds of issues. First, People will speak what their position is, what their need is, describing themselves, not criticizing their partner, but saying, you know, I really believe in saving a lot of money. I don't want to spend a lot. I want to save it. Each person presents their position and the other just simply listens. 
Then the second step is the one that's really powerful. We call it the dream within conflict conversation or exercise. And in this one, one person is the listener, the other is the speaker. And the listener's job is to put aside their position on the issue while they are serving as the listener and to ask their partners each of six questions, literally by reading them off a page that we give them. And the questions are very carefully designed to elicit the subterranean levels, to uncloak what's way beneath somebody's position on an issue. So there are questions like, are there any ethics, values, or beliefs that underlie your position on this issue? What's your childhood history, or is there some background to how you arrived at this position on your issue? What's the underlying purpose and meaning to you of your position on this issue? Why is this so important to you? And so on. So what you're really looking for there, Dan, is understanding the deeper layers of why your partner believes what they believe and is taking a particular position. And then they switch roles. So they both have understanding of one another. And finally, we have a special method of reaching what we call a temporary compromise which honors each person's underlying dream or core need in their position while compromising around the edges, around the more nitty-gritty details that might be a bit more flexible. And the advice wouldn't be that if everyone had these kinds of conversations, every relationship could be saved, because the kind of thoughtful, uh, reflective conversations that you're suggesting people need to have. Not everyone's capable of having that kind of conversation or is an honest actor. When do you stop trying? When do you stop working uh, to fix what you might not be able to fix? Even if you're the reasonable one, it's also possible you're the not reasonable one in the relationship and you just can't see it because we're always the hero in our own story and in our own heads. When is the right moment to, to pull the ripcord, to, to walk away? How do you know when that moment's come? You know, that's a fabulous question because most people think, well, we can't solve this problem, so let's split up. But typically that's not what really predicts the ending. The ending usually occurs and you know it's time that it's over when there's no embers left to blow on to create a little spark when the feelings are dead. In other words, relationships really end with apathy. I wanted to add that a time to to break up is also when one person's life dream is the other person's nightmare. One person, for example, wants to have children. The other person definitely doesn't want to have children. Examples like that where compromise is really impossible. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. People need to get on the same page about that. In my experience talking to people over the years, they get that they need to be on the same page about marriage or about marriage, if they're going to marry, about monogamy, about children. What I often find people not prioritizing, even people who want a sexually exclusive relationship for life, is sexual compatibility. Mm-hmm. That they've got it in their heads that if they put too much emphasis or importance on sex, that they're dirty perverts. And if everything else is working, you know, we both want kids, we, you know, have shared the same values that just focusing on or even thinking about the fact that sexually it's not working isn't 
valid. It isn't a legitimate reason, perhaps, to choose someone else. And I'm curious if your research bears that out, that you should prioritize, not exclusively, not to not, not put it over everything else, but at least beside everything else. Sexual compatibility is a huge driver of, or sexual incompatibility seems to me, but you know, those are the people I hear from, a huge driver of dissatisfaction yeah. in relationships and divorce. Yeah, our data supports that. So it's, uh, you know, it, I, you're absolutely right. That's a really important thing to examine and assess and, and talk about. Uh, you know, when, when you ask the question about getting ready to get married, uh, I think that's a very important thing for people to really explore. And the other thing I was going to say is you should look for having the motto that when one person is upset, the world stops and the other person listens and tries to understand why that person's upset. That ought to be a criterion for whether you're going to marry that person or not. But the takeaway for me here is it's not just dirty sex pervert Dan Savage who tells people that they should prioritize sexual compatibility. Right. It is mainstream researchers, <laughs> Dr. John Gutman, Dr. Julie Gutman, telling people also to prioritize sexual compatibility it is important. It is a legitimate yeah. thing to look for in a relationship. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Dr. John Gottman, Dr. Julie Gottman, thank you so much for demeaning yourselves by coming on my dirty sex. <laughs> right. I really all. appreciate it. You're a legend, Dan. <laughs> we love you. Hey, Dan, I'm a 38-year-old gay cis white man from the East Coast. For the past two and a half years, I've been in a relationship with a guy who's about my age after a lot of fits and starts in the beginning because he said he was still dealing with past relationship breakup and how it became very intense very quickly. We finally made it official. We get pretty intense as well, and we really connected on all aspects of life, uh, shared goals, outlooks on life, etc. From the beginning, we never really had a lot of sex, though, and he was never a very affectionate person, not really kissing, cuddling, or saying I love you after the first time we said it to each other. In the middle of COVID, we broke up. It had been Valentine's Day and then our two-year anniversary, and he did the bare minimum for Valentine's and totally forgot the anniversary. I had made a reservation where we went on our first date, similar to what we did uh, for our first anniversary. I think the pressure of COVID took its toll as well. Fast forward two months, and we had started talking and decided to make a go at it again. I brought up my concerns from before. He said he'd work on them, and it was a sort of, who else are we going to connect with on this level? Let's make it work situation. Well, of course, he hasn't really made it work. And any of the issues I brought up, uh, there's still very little affection. But we otherwise have a very enjoyable relationship, traveling together, interacting with our family and friends, eating out, etc. But there's no sex. We are open and I can get it elsewhere, as can he. So it's not like we're without. We don't talk about the other sex we're having and sort of spend every night together. So it's not the easiest to get. But I guess what I'm sort of asking is... Is the price of admission for a highly compatible relationship on all aspects besides sex, not having sex? Is this a DTMFA sort of situation? I think the added issue is that while on our three-month break, we had the most intense, pleasurable sex with someone else that I could see myself dating. The guy's about 10 years younger than I am. I don't really know if we have a crazy connection besides the mind-blowing sex. But in the midst of our play, he was playful, cuddly, affectionate, and all the things I'm missing in my relationship. There's the added mess that this guy is an ex of one of my best friends. We met four years ago and always gave each other the eye and sort of knew we would have mind-blowing sex if 
we got to it and we both thought each other were sexy and into the same sort of adventurousness and kink. So while single, I said I could see myself dating him and he agreed and we sort of made a go at it. And then me and the boyfriend got back together. I find myself thinking about the great sex guy all the time, though. So I guess, what do I do? Do I stay in a meaningful, satisfying relationship without sex? Do I go after the one I can see connection with? And if I do, how do I broach it with my friends? Uh, help, please. You can't DTMFA when there's no MFA detected or no MF detected. There's no motherfucker in this story. You like this guy. You love this guy. The guy you're back in a relationship with now, back in a sexless relationship with now. He said he wanted to make it work. You want to make it work too. Companionate, putting that label on it. This is a companionate relationship. That's one way to make this work. And that's about shifting your expectations of each other. You may be frustrated with the guy you're currently with, the guy you got back together with, where there's not a strong sexual connection and not a lot of affection because he said he would work on that and nothing's changed. So you went back into this relationship with a set of expectations that maybe there would be more physical affection. Maybe there'd be more of a sexual connection that you guys would work at that. And either he hasn't worked at it or no amount of working at it's going to change anything. You guys love each other. You love spending time together. You love functioning socially as a couple. You love presenting as a couple, bringing each other's families together. But the sex isn't there and it may never be there. So what do you do? Well, if you want sex and a relationship, if you want sex and everything else this guy brings to the table, well, now you know you're not going to have it with that guy. If you want this guy and everything he brings to the table and you're allowed to get sex elsewhere and you will be content, you can have this guy and you can have the kind of sexual connections that you miss or you don't have a sexual connection or, or multiple sexual connections with other guys to meet those needs. You know, one of the bitter ironies of sex and relationships over time is that, you know, not all relationships are companionate at the start, but a lot of relationships become companionate in time. Often passion wanes, but the desire for that NRE, that new relationship energy, the desire for passion remains. And the only way in a closed relationship to have passion Back in your life is to get the fuck out of that closed relationship where the spark has gone out. People in companionate relationships who make it work, make the companionate relationship work, not try to make sex, not try to jam sex into what is a companionate relationship. The spark never goes out because the spark was never lit in the first place and they can seek sparks outside the relationship. So that's the conversation you need to have with the guy you're seeing now. You say that it's open well, how open is it? Are you allowed to pursue other guys on the up and up? Or is it a DADT sort of arrangement that prevents you from really enjoying NRE or, or going and finding NRE? Would you be happier in a polyamorous relationship where you could be with this guy, be with him long term, you guys could be partners, even husbands, but he could have a boyfriend, you could have a boyfriend, and those boyfriends would be welcome in your lives. They wouldn't be dirty little secrets that you guys had to hide from each other or from your social circles or even from your families. That's what you really need to do. That You need to have that conversation with this guy. What you know now is nothing where sex is concerned has changed or is likely to change. And I'm just going to call it is or, or is going to change. Nothing's going to change where sex is concerned. You know, you can change your expectations. 
And if your expectations of this relationship are the expectations someone brings to the table of a companionate relationship, then yeah, you can make this work. But it's not going to work if you're constantly disappointed. And right now it sounds like you're a little disappointed. Seems to me with a shift of expectations, you could be happier. You could be more content because you could have everything you want. You could have this guy that you have a really great, if non-sexual, connection with and have other guys or another guy at the same time that you enjoy a stronger or any sexual connection with. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Public X Imanez tweets about the call with the toxic father on episode 779 of the Savage Lovecast. Getting in someone's face and screaming at them, particularly to end an argument, is violence. The caller's father should have been thankful to be invited to his daughter's wedding at all. Dr. Linda Kirkman tweets, thanks for a great show this week and for the interview with Adam Smith about his new book on the history of Popper's Sniff. A correction, though, regarding the legality of Popper's in Australia. Amyl nitrate is legally available thanks to some excellent advocates. Dr. Kirkman, whose Twitter handle is Linda the Star, included a link to an excellent story about how Bottoms organized in Australia to head off a ban on poppers and to make sure they remained legally available to them. You can find that story at qnews.com.au. Headline, what you need to know about the law change around poppers, published February 3rd, 2020. And finally, Cyborg Space Cat tweets, me re-listening to back episodes of at Fake Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast now because dust off shoulders. I am a Magnum subscriber now. Can't believe how much I've missed. Glad you're enjoying those back episodes, Cyborg Space Cat, and thank you for becoming a Magnum subscriber. And now, listener response calls. Hi, Dan. This is a comment for the caller in episode 779, whose fiancé said he didn't want to have kids because of climate change and overpopulation. If that really is the only reason, then I wonder whether they've considered adoption. Not only would they get to be parents, but there's plenty of children out there who have already been born and are going to be facing climate change no matter what. Hi, a comment for Savage Lovecast 779 and the interview with the author who wrote the book about poppers. I'm surprised nobody mentioned anything about poppers on the dance floor because I've certainly had very good times on the dance floor with poppers. So it's not just for wanking and sex, it's also for dancing. Hi, Dan. I just had to call and thank you. Um, I finally heard your Tuesday podcast number 779 finally recognized my own voice, and you helped support my decision to end it with my person, the one that refused to include me in holidays. I, I did end it. I have stayed ended. He has pursued me since, and I just have um, stood firm. I am dating. Soon I'll be able to have lots of 61-year-old dating stories for you. But I was smiling as I listened, and I really, really thank you for sort of corroborating my decision, upholding it as hard as it was. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Hey, Miami, Minneapolis, and Long Beach, you are about to get humped. Our 2021 lineup of short porn flicks is screening this week at O Cinema in Miami, St. Anthony Main Theater, Minneapolis, and Art Theater in Long Beach. 
Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets, streaming links, and to submit your dirty movie for our 2022 edition of the Hump Film Fest. Also, my new book, Savage Love from A to Z, is out now, illustrated by my longtime Savage Love collaborator, Joe Newton. Grab a copy wherever books are sold. And finally, a quick programming note. We usually do Sack Lunch, my monthly live Q&A with Magnum and Savage Lovecraft subscribers on the first Thursday of the month. But this month, we're moving it to Thursday, October 14th because of a scheduling conflict. Be on the lookout for that Zoom link. It will pop into your email inbox if you are a Magnum subscriber. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow the Gottman Institute on Twitter at GottmanInst. Follow Dr. Kristen Mark on Twitter at Kristen underscore Mark. And check out The Abstinence Project at theabstinenceproject.com. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with an installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thank you for time.